you guys, uh, you may have heard this already. If you haven't, uh, I just got some bad news because we here in America lost an American icon this week on Wednesday. <laughs> why are y'all laughing at a dead guy? A guy died and you're laughing. I don't know why. Wednesday, hump day. We, what? <laughs> Stop it. We lost Hugh Hefner. Not a lot of people know this. Hugh Hefner was raised Methodist. And not just on the periphery of religion. He was deep in it. His parents were leaders in the Methodist church where he went. His mom was extremely rigid. She was a prohibitionist. Um, some of the Methodists were leading the prohibitionist movement to make, basically make alcohol uh, illegal or unavailable to the general public. And, and uh, she was on the front edge of that. And Hugh Hefner actually talked later in life about what it was like to grow up in such a repressed atmosphere at home. And he said, um, you know, his mom never touched him. His mom never hugged him. And he had forgiven her, he said. She, he knew she was doing the best that she could, or the best she knew to do. But he also said that uh, it may have had something to do with how he chose to spend the rest of his life, basically looking for just any woman who would touch him or hug him or whatever like that might have been a reaction against the repression he experienced as a child. Now, right or wrong, that's kind of what he said and what he attributed his drive to achieve the Playboy empire uh, that, that, he, that he achieved. Now, before the Playboy empire, Hugh Hefner was married at a young age to a woman named Mildred. And some people don't know this, but Hugh Hefner uh, almost didn't marry Mildred. He was 23 when he married her. Almost called it off. Because just a couple weeks before the wedding, Mildred confided and confessed to Hugh that she'd had an affair. That she had cheated on him with another man while Hugh was serving in the military. While he was away fighting for his country, Mildred took another lover. And she confessed this to him before the wedding. He almost called it off. He decided to just go ahead and marry her. They had already sent out the invitations, all this stuff. You know, we pressure ourselves into these weddings. So he, he married her anyway. But from day one in that marriage, he said he insisted on uh, going out with, sleeping with anyone that he was so inclined to sleep with. And, and he kind of saw this as getting back at Mildred because he felt cheated. He felt cheated by what she'd done. And so he was going to punish her for doing that to him. And Mildred knew about it. Mildred knew Hugh Hefner was a serial cheater from day one in their marriage. He sought her permission. He sought her okay. And she said, okay, why? Because she felt so guilty. Guilt is a powerful force. She felt so guilty that she let him cheat at will forever. And of course, they lived happily ever after, and it was a romantic marriage they shared for decades. No, I'm just kidding. Nine years in, they divorced. They, they had some kids and all that, but they just couldn't make their marriage work. It was, uh, Hugh later said, you know, when somebody gets married, they should really find themselves before they get married. Uh, he said, I didn't find myself until after I got married. And, you know, he found himself, you know, in the arms of a dozen playmates a year. That's where he found himself. And, uh, and this whole thing of finding yourself is, I've always found to be a little silly, this idea that you have to find yourself before you get married. If you're looking for yourself, like, 
hey, you're right there. I see you. You're right there and you're right there and you're right there. You don't have to look very far, you know. That's yourself. You found it. So go ahead. You know what I mean? But like we are just so caught up in this like self-esteem culture that we're in. Like how to find myself before. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. That's how it works for Hugh, apparently. He said uh, this about uh, his work, his life's work in the Playboy Mansion and all that. He said, the major civilizing force in the world is not religion, it's sex. The major civilizing force in the world is not religion, it's sex. So his whole life was about, let's take religion out of the public sphere, let's take it out of the center, and let's put sex there, right? It's obvious that's what he lived for. So in a sense, sex was, for Hugh Hefner, kind of like a god, kind of like an idol. He put something that was good and said, no, it's not just good, it's the best. He put something that belonged on the periphery of your life, and he said, no, 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 it's everything. And so he made things like pornography, mainstream, in ways that it never was before. He gave men all over America and the world eventually this fantasy that, you know, they too could be playboys and wear pajamas all day, every day, and like just this live vicariously through Hugh Hefner. Even when he was like 85 years old, he had this fantasy going on because it became everything to him. For Hef, sex was God. Now, this is always dangerous. Is always dangerous, no matter what it is. Some of you share Hugh Hefner's um, proclivities. Some of you share that sin of putting sex on a higher, more central pedestal than it belongs. And you've seen for yourself what it does. Whenever you take God out of the center and you put something from the side in the center, if it's sex, what happens inevitably is that you start to see and value everyone in your life on the basis of how they can feed this worship, this addiction in your life. So if they're, you know, if they're a potential sex partner or sex object, like that places them higher in your world than somebody who would never be. So we start to value people based on this that you're worshiping very dangerous business. And eventually you start to see bodies as just shapes. You start to see women as just objects. And it's just a really slippery slope. And it can be applied to any of the uh, kinds of things we put from the, from the side in the center. We do this all the time with our rituals, even like the things that we do in church or the things we do at weddings or whatever. Like we just take something from the side and put it in the center. Take something symbolic, something that's supposed to be a reflection of something greater, like sex is supposed to be a reflection of something, some greater communion, some greater pleasure. This is supposed to be a foretaste of glory, but we say, no, 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 it's not the foretaste of glory, it is glory. And we do it all the time. The most common place I see this, because I'm in this business, is weddings. I'm about to make some people mad up in here right now. Let me tell you, because some of y'all have taken weddings from the side and put them here. Wedding, it's everything. I don't even care who he is, just the wedding. You know what I mean? Like, I just, just want the wedding. And then you get, you find the one and you plan your wedding. I'm just not just talking about women. It's mostly women. But I'm not just talking about women. But, you, and man, it's so much pressure. And I feel it for y'all. Like, because it's not just the woman getting married. It's everyone in her life who says everything has to be perfect. And the, 
it's a lot of pressure on people like me too. I'm so afraid to mess up a wedding. People are like, you know, you probably do this. You know, you're, it's, it's old hat for you. You've been a preacher for X amount of years. Like how many weddings? Like you just, they're all the same. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. If I knock over a flower vase in this wedding, like their lives are over. That's all that she's been living for. And I ruined it. I'm a murderer at that point. You know what I mean? Like just, whoa, heavy, heavy, heavy. So everything has to be perfect. The dress, perfection. The music, the string quartet, whatever, perfection. The, the unity candle or the sand or whatever you do, the breaking over the glass, whatever, like it all has to be perfect. The chicken or the, if you're rich, the seafood, whatever, it has to be perfect or like, you know what I mean? And, and the, the entrance at the wedding, the entrance at the reception, it's all got to work. It's all got to be coordinated. There's so much pressure because we took something that's supposed to be a symbol of something greater and we made it to something greater. Some of us. Now, there's others of us in this room that go to weddings and just check out mentally until the reception when they start serving the wine or whatever. Because you hate weddings. You applauding? I heard somebody applaud. All right, so I feel you. So, like, you just, it's all the same. It's torture. What's the big deal? Same music, same song, same scripture, 1 Corinthians. Blah. Like, it's just all the same, and the dress is the same, and the preacher's the same, and the chicken's the same, and it's all the same. Same, same, same. And, and I, I understand that. However, never, ever tell a woman that her wedding dress is the same as every other wedding dress. Guys just don't. They're not. So, see, even the lights go out when you talk about it. So, we got a, we got a woman running lights today. So, the, it's not even true. Scott's running the lights. <laughs> so, so uh, the, uh, the, the, the deal with weddings, man, neither of those extremes is right. Both are wrong. Because people that take the wedding from the outside, the periphery of our lives and put it in the center, they're worshiping the wedding. And they don't care if they have a, 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 a meaningless, uh, you know, marriage. They haven't even thought about the marriage. It's just the wedding. You know what I mean? And that's too much. Now, the people on the other side of this that don't see anything else happening at a wedding except the same, the same, the same, they're missing it too. They're missing the beauty and the glory of the foreshadowing of what this all represents. Because no wedding happens in a vacuum. Every wedding represents some future glory. I want to talk about that. All right, I want to talk about it. I remember my wedding day. It was simultaneously sweet and pathetic. It was so sad at times because we were 20 and we were broke. Broke, broke. Like not just like well, we didn't have any money. Like we had nothing, man. We had to borrow everything for our wedding. And and even Giovanna's dress came from somebody else. And 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 the the, the officiant was, you know, my father and a friend of Giovanna's. And uh, and so they were free, thank goodness. And uh and we didn't have music. We had tapes. We had uh, canned, like, tapes, canned music. You know what I mean? Like, tapes. Y'all know what tapes are? Kids, ask your parents. Tapes, cassette tapes of the entrance music and all that stuff, right? So it was all very cheesy. And uh, we, didn't, uh, we didn't serve a meal after. We didn't have the money to feed everybody at our own wedding. And that was a little bit of a hit to the, to the old pride. Um, and the whole day I was just thinking, we're just not doing this right. I'm just not doing this right. Uh, I'm just, this isn't right. I'm not getting, she deserves more than this. She deserves more. 
and my friends weren't helping. My best man was from uh, Congo, uh, the Republic of Congo. He used to be Zaire, and, and he's African, and, and he talks like a little bit like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he, the whole day, he was like, are you sure? Are you sure, Eric? Are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. Like, just leave me alone. Like, are you sure? It's everything in my power not to make a get to the chopper joke right now. But uh, anyway, so the... The other thing was my dad was our officiant. And up to the minute before we went out into the sanctuary to get married, he's putting his hands on my shoulders, looking me, his son, in the eye. He's not my pastor yet. You know, we go out there, he's my pastor. Here he's my daddy saying, you know, Eric, there's still time. If you're not sure, there's still time. I'm like, it starts in 90 seconds. There's still time. All these doubts, all this, all this guilt about not doing it right. And then there was a moment when I knew. I knew, I just knew. It was all going to be okay. There was one moment when I knew I was sure. And that was when those doors flung open and my bride stood there in that dress somebody else bought her. And just looking radiant. I still remember when I closed my eyes. And I just forgot everybody else was there. And it was just her. And she looked perfect and radiant and beautiful and she was looking at me like I was perfect and radiant and beautiful. I, I didn't get it, but it was just this wonderful moment. And in that moment, here's what I realized. Because I've, I, was, I was thinking more than just about us. I, I, I was thinking about what this represented. And I know the Bible. And I know the Bible's most favorite analogy for our relationship with God. And what God wants with us is a wedding. From beginning to end, in the book of Revelation, all about a wedding. The wedding of Christ as our groom and the church as his bride. Ephesians 5, Old Testament, uh, New Testament stories, Jesus' parables, all about weddings and wedding feasts and wedding parties. You see, God's whole design for us is for us to enter his sanctuary for him to look at us the same way I looked at Giovanna that day and for us to look back at him the same way she looked at me. It all just, it all just made sense in that moment. You know, some people will throw a million dollar wedding and have a cheap marriage. We threw a cheap wedding. We've had an extravagant marriage because we understand it all as a reflection of something greater. I'm not saying there aren't rough patches, but when you understand that the wedding is not the thing, but it's a reflection of the thing, pointing toward the thing, that's when we get things um, right. That's when we get away from this kind of idolatry. Um, so what does a wedding reflect? First, it's the marriage. Second, it's the eternal glory of God and his love for us. I want to uh, read a little bit of scripture here. Um, today we're in the book of Hebrews still. So we're, this is part four of like a seven or eight part sermon series. If you're brand new, don't feel uh, out of place. You can hop right in midstream with us. Um, and hopefully we'll uh, make this palatable or, or at least uh, intelligible if you don't have a lot of Bible background. If you don't have a Bible with you today, that's cool. We'll put all the scriptures on the screen or uh, in this study guide. You can follow along as well. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9. If you wouldn't mind just turning with me if you have a Bible or on your uh, Bible app on your phone or just follow along with me. If you just don't own a Bible or yours is, you know, in storage somewhere, you haven't seen it in a decade, uh, you can go uh, on the way out, grab one from the uh, Welcome Center and it's, it's free. So I hope you'll get one. Chapter 9 of Hebrews, 
Verse 11. If you're lost when we read this, just know that everyone else in this room is too. And so nobody understands the book of Hebrews until you really study it. Here we go. Chapter 9, verse 11 to 14. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that, now, that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. I'll explain what a tabernacle is in a minute. That is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not part of this creation. He did not enter it by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered it, the most holy place, once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are, listen, outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Now, first thing I'll say, that's some weird stuff. Y'all just hang in there. I know the church is full of weird stuff. What I want to tell you is that usually when something weirds you out in a church, you got to be patient and peel back the layers because there's centuries of meaning, centuries of profound meaning there somewhere, you got to just dig for it. I, I, I worry sometimes about newcomers when we sing songs like, nothing but the blood of Jesus, you know, and newcomers are like, oh, my God, it sounds, oh, like blood is everywhere, you know what I mean? Or, or like even lion and the lamb, which we just sang. What does that mean? God is a lion, God is a lamb. Those are two totally different things. Like what are we singing, what are we talking about? It's all there. The meaning is all layers and layers of awesome stuff if you just look for it. So uh, the same is true with a passage like this. I want to talk about blood in just a minute, so I know you're looking forward to that. But first, uh, what you need to know is that for Hebrew people, for the audience of this Hebrew author, sacrifice, the sacrificial system of religion was everything. That's what was up here. So the system of religion was up here. Because, to their credit, God told them to do it that way. If you look at the Old Testament, man, it can be really confusing because in one book, God's like, do it this way and follow this rule and do the blood this way and cut the animal this way. Like all this very specific instructions. And so then the people follow through on God's very specific instructions and God gets mad at them. And it's very confusing. The people are like, wait, you told us to do this. So whenever this author is talking about tabernacle, that's what he's talking about. This system of sacrifice. So you go in. You offer up a goat or a heifer. I don't know why that word's funny. I love saying heifer. You offer up a heifer or you offer up whatever you can afford. However bad a sinner you've been, you give more, right? If it was just a little white lie, maybe a pigeon or something like that. Like it wasn't whatever it takes to just make you feel like your conscience has been cleaned. Half the Old Testament is about that kind of thing, God telling people to do that. That's what tabernacle meant. So what you had in the tabernacle was an everlasting church service, kind of like when my sermons go long and you're just held hostage. Like tabernacle was an everlasting church service. So 24-6, I almost said 7, they took a day off. 24-6, there were people flooding in and out of the tabernacle because they were seeking a clean conscience. All they wanted was to feel 
good again, but they just had this guilt about what they had done. And that last time they sacrificed something, like that got them through okay, but now they're feeling guilty again. And, and what, what this author's saying is that that system, while well-intentioned, was flawed. That system was intended to be a reflection of something greater, but we took the system and made it the thing. We took the, something good and made it great, the greatest, as if that's all there was. And what happened was people went seeking a clean conscience internally, but all religion will give you ever is a clean appearance externally. So there's a difference between extrinsic cleansing and internal intrinsic clean cleansing, right? And so religion doesn't cleanse anyone's conscience, not for any length of time. It just makes you look religious in the eyes of other people when you get a pat on the back or a gold star on the attendance deal and your guilt is a sage for a little while. And this angered God. I want you to hear these words from the prophet Amos. Check this out. This blew my mind. The first two words in Amos chapter 5, verse 21, this is God talking. I hate I hate. Isn't that a contradiction in terms? Like the Bible says God is love. How can he hate? But listen, if you really love something, you're bound to hate something else. Uh, hate is not the opposite of love. The Bible says fear is the opposite of love. God hates your feasts, he says. I despise them. I can't stand the stench of your Church services is really what he's saying. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever un unfailing stream. So listen, justice and righteousness is what God wanted all along. He wanted this religious system to point people toward it, but instead we said, no, 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 this, this is it. There is nothing more. And what I want us to be careful of, sometimes we have a little bit of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. We look back and say, well, those people were just archaic. Those cavemen killing animals and stuff, like, of course, of course that was wrong. But listen, we do the same kind of things. Your goats might be safe. You might not be killing any goats. But you might not be having any goats. Inter Interloop Houston, not known for its goat population. But we do the same kinds of things. Christians, man, we get mad about the weirdest stuff. We get upset about the strangest things. Gio and I know this. We've been in church our whole lives. We're both preacher's kids. We've planted four churches now. The first church we planted was a Hispanic church, and we planted it inside an older white church building. So it was like a, a white congregation full of like white people, older white people, and the building itself was like white. Every wall was white. Inside, outside was white. The name of the church White Avenue United Methodist Church. Even though it wasn't on White Avenue, they just called it that because everything in it was white. Like that was just, that was kind of a stumbling block when you're trying to plant a church of color in, 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 in a transitioned neighborhood. So we were planting this Spanish language community. And man, I was so proud at first of that uh, Anglo community, that older white congregation. I was their pastor too. And, and uh, they were so gracious, man. In the beginning, I couldn't believe how they, willing they were to stretch themselves and change the way that they've always done things. So at first we said, hey, 
uh, we need to raise some money for this Hispanic congregation. We're going to sell some tamales. And we'd like to cook the tamales in the church kitchen. I thought that would be a problem. It wasn't. They were totally cool with it. I don't think they knew how messy tamales can be, but they were, or they were totally cool with it. They even came and bought tamales. It was great. It was a great unifying party. And we said, hey, uh, our, uh, this Hispanic community really, really values birthday parties. So we'd like to throw some birthday parties for these kids in our fellowship hall. It might involve several piñatas and uh, <laughs> several kids with stitches probably before the parties are over because there's not a lot of order to that chaos. But, like, will you let us? Yeah, yeah, let's party. And they would bring the ice cream and they would be so hospitable, man. Everything was awesome until it came time for this Hispanic congregation to start worshiping in the sanctuary. And just when I thought I had the full support of that whole congregation, I set up a drum kit in the sanctuary. And I swear to you, that Sunday morning, when those sweet old ladies walked into that sanctuary and saw that drum kit, I had no idea they had fangs. The fangs just came out, and I thought they were going to kill me for putting a drum kit in their sanctuary. Like, I had 911 just dialed up just in case. I was, like, just, like, walking around carefully that whole morning because they were so upset about the drum kit in the sanctuary. Now, I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize I would upset you. Let me show you in Psalms where it says, worship me with, your, with the beat of your drums, like, like worship me with, with cymbals and stuff. And they were like, we don't care what the Bible says. We don't, we don't want drums in our sanctuary. And I was like, whoa, that's really interesting. <laughs> Maybe we should have talked about this. You don't care what the Bible says. That's cool. So uh, anyway, anyway, it, it was, it was, that was the line for them, you see? Because the, the sanctuary, that room had taken on meaning it was never intended to take on. That room was supposed to be a reflection of some eternal glory. It was supposed to be a peripheral reflection of some central eternal glory. And they took it from here and they put it here. Thou shalt not touch this. Thou shalt not change this. And religious folks, man, Christians, we do this kind of thing all the time. If you want to see how people confuse the ritual with reality, just check out what makes them mad. And the year after a political season like the one we just had, you probably get an idea of the kind of thing I'm talking about. Or if you want a, a more current example, the incredible amount of outrage about the NFL stuff and the protests. Like, I have never seen people so upset or heard them on the radio, or seen headlines and just all this stuff about these football players taking a knee or protesting something. They kind of, uh, I'm not real sure uh, what all is being protested now, but some very worthy causes protesting with their freedom of speech, First Amendment right. You would think they killed somebody's mama, man, because of the way people reacted. Why? Why? You know what I mean? So they, I, I want to say this, I, I get both sides of it. I think there's a right to do that, and there's a right to be upset about people who, who do that, right? Because the, the flag and, and the country, I love my country, and people have died for that flag, and it's about respect and things like that. And so I understand both sides of it. Here's what I don't understand. I don't understand Christians who are just now getting mad about the immorality of the NFL, <laughs> 
I don't don't know why this is the tipping point when, you know, with advertising and cheerleading, like they've been exploiting women and girls for years, you know, and they've been promoting violence for years, and they've been not taking care of former players with head trauma for years. Why is this the tipping point? Because we've taken something good like patriotism, love of country, and made it the thing. We've taken something that's supposed to be a reflection of something better and said, no, it's the best. Thou shalt not violate this under any terms. And so I get both sides, but sometimes we have to check our emotions because sometimes it can very easily turn into idolatry. I'm going to move on now that uh, you're all mad at me. So Hebrews 9, verse 15 to 22. Here we go. Uh, Verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom, it's a cool word, ransom, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. That's Old Testament language there. In the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant. Does that sound familiar? It should. We'll say it again in a minute. This is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. That's kind of weird. And uh, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. When he says the law, he's talking about the Old Testament law and its requirement for blood. So I want to talk about two things that everybody gets excited about. We'll talk about sin and blood and then we're done, okay? First of all, sin. A uh, very simple definition of sin is uh, falling short. To fall short of what is right. Now, here's what I want to say about sin. Everybody thinks sin is a Christian concept. That it's just Christians that are obsessed with sin and we just talk about sin, blah, blah, blah. So it's not. It's not. Everyone believes in the concept of sin. Everyone believes in the concept of something right, and when we fall short of it, we miss the mark. Everyone, even your atheist, agnostic friends, they believe in the concept of sin. If you don't believe me that they believe in sin, then right after the service, just go over to their house and key their car. Just key their car, have your way with it, write Jesus heart you on their car, and see what happens. Here's what will happen. They will demand that you pay them damages because you owe them because there was something that was right and you didn't do it. And now you have to fill the void. You have to rise to the occasion and do what's right, pay the damages because you owe that person now. And if you refuse, what will they do? They will sue you. You will be in court or your insurance company will have to respond or whatever and they'll try to get the money that you owe because of the damage that you caused. Look, we call that crime. More specifically, it's the concept of sin. That there's something right and we have an obligation to live up to that something right. The question then for us that we differ on issues of theism and atheism, the question is where does that something right come from? 
Where does the moral code come from? Now, my sense is that for most secularists, for people that don't believe in the Bible and things like that, and people that think what we're doing here is just kind of wasting a good Sunday morning, um, people kind of have the opinion that morality is legislated. Morality comes from the local or uh, uh, government or the legal code. And so that's where we get our sense of morality. A culture sets its or elects its officials to set the laws, and that's where we get morality. If you hear people talk about things like that, like the, you know, the, the morality comes from Washington or from Austin or from downtown, whatever, like that's morality, okay? Now, for Christians, we say, no, look, look, uh, the law and government and legislation, all of that is intended to be good, something good that reflects something better. It's an attempt, a human finite attempt, imperfect attempt to do something perfect, right? And so we want to keep government, law, things like that over here and say there's some underlying source of what's good and what's right universally, not just for us. But people who don't believe that might say, look, it's up to us to determine what's right for us and to stay out of other people's business. To, determine, to let them determine what's right for them because there's no universal moral code. They get to determine what's right for them. We'll determine what's right for us and we'll have to respect each other in that way. Which is very interesting to me when something like the Saudi Arabian ruling happens like it did this week where women get to drive in Saudi Arabia. And people were applauding that. Secularists, atheists, agnostics, applauding it as if they had been violating some universal moral code forever by not letting women drive. How oppressive. How archaic. Well, wait, I thought that we got to determine what's right for us and other people got to determine what's right for them. I thought there was nothing universal about morality until you're offended. Until what someone else is doing in some other culture just rubs you the wrong way and suddenly you become just as judgmental of that culture as you've said Christians are of this one. And we get into the same, secularists get into the same kind of cycle. Why? Because we all believe in a universal moral code. We just do. And you can key your friend's car to find out. If you can't find his car, is probably the Subaru if it's your atheist friend. So just, that's just find the Subaru, go ahead and key that baby and see what happens because we all believe that there is a universal code of morality. Anything short of that is sin. When sin occurs, we all agree that damages are owed. Listen, someone has hurt you. Someone has fallen short of what's right with you. And so there is within you, when that happens, a sense of damages being owed. They owe you. Something. And sometimes those damages are financial and you can sue for them or whatever. You know, a car, house, whatever, property. But sometimes that damage is emotional. Sometimes it's just, it's intangible. So the question is, when what somebody owes you is emotional, like if uh, your spouse cheats on you or, you know, maybe if someone abused you when you were a child, how do you collect on a debt, a cosmic emotional debt like that? How do you collect that debt? can't really take that person to court. You can take your cheating husband to the jewelry store, I guess. Uh, maybe collect a debt in some way. Or if you're that abused child, you probably just carry that debt around with you forever. You probably just carry it. Because how do you pay, how do you collect on that debt? You know what I mean? Something's got to be done about the debt that's owed. Debts don't just vanish. 
We know this. Anybody finance majors, economics majors? Debts don't just vanish. This is also a spiritual truth. The debts owed you emotionally, they don't just vanish. You got to do something with them. You either collect them or you carry them. And many times, especially in cases of childhood abuse, you just will carry them. And everybody knows it. Everybody knows that person's carrying something. That person's carrying something real heavy. I don't know what it is, but they're carrying something. And what the Bible's point is here in Hebrews chapter 9 is that same reality exists between us and God. That God created us to live a certain life. God created us to live a certain way. God said, I just want to give you this free gift of life. I want to give you this beautiful earth to call home. I want to give you the ability to create for yourselves. I want to give you the ability to plant food and eat food. I want to give you the ability to have bacon in your mouth. I want to give you the ability to hear music and be moved to tears. I want to give you so many good gifts. I want to give you uh, the gift of sex with your spouse. I want to give you all this beauty and glory. But I want to, I want to know you. I want you to live in a state of communion with me, God says. I want you to be known by me, be loved by me. I want you to delight in me and trust me and and yet, how do we live? You know, we fall short of that. All the time, we fall short of that. The question the Bible raises is, how do you compensate for falling short cosmically of uh, what, what God's standard is? What do you do with that debt? Biblically, the answer in the Old Testament was, something as serious as sinning before a perfect God would require the spilling of earth's most precious commodity, which is what? Blood. Like, it's not that God needed the blood, <laughs> you know. Like, God's not thirsty in heaven, and he's not vengeful. It's not that, that he's hungry and you offer up the meat and it's served. You know, like, that's not what it is, although that's sometimes how we, how we conceive of it. It's that only something as precious as blood can bring us to a place of humility where we can stop and conceive of the ways we've fallen short of the glory for which he created us. Only something as sacred as blood. Money can't do that. Money, money's going to cheapen the whole thing. Money's not going to stop you and make you think and reflect on the depth and profound nature of sin and falling short. Only something like blood can get us out of our mentality of constant cyclical guilt and shame. Only blood. That's the point they're making here. Agree or disagree, that's fine. Let's finish up this passage and then we're done. 9, 23 to 28, here we go. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, Old Testament sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy. Church buildings, only copies of the true sanctuary. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way high priest off enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times again and again since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all. Say that with me, once for all. At the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, 
but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him once for all. Here we go. Bring it home here. Listen. The differences between religion and gospel could not be more stark. The difference between religion and gospel is that when religion becomes the main thing in your life, it will only produce in you more guilt. The more religious you become, the more guilty you become. I just had a conversation yesterday with a contractor we had at our house, Hispanic guy, and he said, I might come to your church. He was speaking in Spanish, so I kind of picked up on most of it. He said, I'm Catholic, but I might come to your church anyway. And I'm, I'm like, I'm glad he didn't come last week when I talked about priests. So I'm, uh, <laughs> he would have been really offended. And so I was like, no, oh, you should come. And he was like, that's what we Catholics do, you know. This isn't speaking for all Catholics, but he said, that's what we Catholics do. He made a joke, right? He said, we go to church. Uh, so we can feel better about the sins we committed, and then we leave church and go sin again. You know, that kind of thing. And he, he was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go to your church to appease and assuage my guilt. Because that's what religion does. It's a self-perpetuating cycle of guilt. So that goat you sacrificed a couple weeks ago, it was good for a while, but it wasn't good to cover your guilt today because you're guilty again. And so you go back to the farm and your goats are like, man, like running away. Like he's back, you know, like here he is again. How many goats have to die, man? Like how long will it take for the guilt to go away? That's the difference between religions of men and the gospel of Jesus. Religions keep you guilty. Jesus sets you free. It says, Jesus appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages. How beautiful is that? The culmination of the ages. That is, for all time to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Why was it necessary for God to die on a cross to achieve the forgiveness of sins? Because if I fall short of God's design, and the Old Testament says the only way to atone for that is with the blood of animals. What about all my sin for all time? Like, I was overwhelmed this week. One, one night, I decided to make a list of all the sins I committed in that day alone. It was depressing. Like, I was being as honest as I could, and I was like, yeah, I just, I was angry at my kids, and yeah, I didn't really want to write my sermon, and yeah, I pretended to read my Bible, and I had Sports Illustrated tucked inside of it, and like, you know, like all this stuff, and, and I cursed a lot and just awful things. And, and, I, and then I thought, man, if that's just my sin, what does that list look like for everybody's sins? Everybody in the falling short that we do. And that was, that was just for one day. What does it look like, that list, for everybody, for all times? And if the blood of some animal could maybe atone for my sin, my own temporary sin. What's it going to take to atone for the sins and the offenses and the ingratitude and the anger and rage and hate that has plagued humanity, not just today, but for all time in the past and in the future? What will it take to make us right with God again, to atone for all of that? The Bible's point, the Bible's case is that the only thing that can do that is the blood and not the blood of animals, not our own blood, the blood of God, the innocent, holy blood of God. Jesus on the cross is more than just a religious symbol. It is the completion. Jesus hanged there bleeding saying it is finished. And what he meant was the system of guilt is finished. Christians worship a God who says, look, religion doesn't cut it. We confuse religion with reality. We're missing the point. We're wearing ourselves out 
with the cycle of guilt and sacrifice, guilt and sacrifice. And so our God came to earth in the form of Jesus of Nazareth to give his own blood as a ransom once for all. Not again and again and again and again. Once for all. What's amazing is how many Christians are still living in the tabernacle system. That's why when I see you at H-E-B and you've missed six weeks of church in a row, you're real sheepish about it. You're like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so Like it's a confession in the frozen food aisle at H-E-B. No, this is not the tabernacle. You are not guilty because Jesus said you're not. If you come to church, don't come to church with a guilty conscience. Come to church free. Come to church because you're free to worship God with your family. Come, come and give your gifts, not because God needs your money. He doesn't. Give your money because you're free to give it. You don't need it. You're not addicted to it. You're free. You want others to be free too. When he was little, Hugh Hefner's religion at home was all about guilt and shame. It's all he knew. And so when his wife... Uh, his fiance cheated on him. He guilted her and he shamed her because he's all he knew. Humiliated her, made her pay what she owed him and that led him down that path toward addiction. What I want to say to you today is that we are no better than Hef. We are no one to judge. We are no better because we do the same things caught in that cycle of guilt and sacrifice. We still collect our debts with interest from those who's hurt, who have hurt us because something must be done with our debt. It's got to be collected or it's got to be carried. Or we take the third way of Jesus. Jesus who says, look, you don't have to carry the debt. You don't have to collect the debt. There's a third way. It's me on the cross. It's Jesus on the cross forgiving sin, absorbing our guilt and our shame once for all. So listen, if you're still living in that dead economy, you're still in the tabernacle. And this is the last thing I'll say. If tonight, when you're laying in your bed, and, or tomorrow night or the night after, and all you can think is about all the ways you screwed up today, all you can think about is, I didn't make it to the grocery store. Oh, my bad father, bad mother. Um, I didn't tell my kids I love them. I didn't read them enough books or I wasn't there for my friends or I'm not ready for work tomorrow. I didn't do my, my work. My team's going to be disappointed in me. If all you can think is about all the stupid stuff you've done, the ways you've fallen short, that's the voice of your accuser who wants you to believe you're somebody that you're not. And in light of Jesus and his cross, whenever you hear that voice trying to convince you that you're just a sinner, that you're not worth anything, that you've fallen short of God's glory your whole life and you'll never amount to anything whenever you hear that voice tonight, all you have to do is say, you know what, you're right. <laughs> you're right about me. And that just makes me glory in Jesus even more. Because if I am, if I am that person and he came for me anyway, thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. Let his glory become your own. Let him be this and not whatever is on the periphery of your life.